Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Ah, Friday the 13th. What an excellent way to start the year, if I do say so. I think that bodes well for 2023, personally. Sadly, it's the only Friday the 13th this year until October. So, better make the most of it. For me, that means it's time to buy my once-or-twice-a-year lottery ticket. Wish me luck. Continuing on from last week, tonight we shine the spotlight on our master of the microphone, Andrew Gibson. If you've been a regular listener, you'd first have heard Andrew's voice on episode 493 in the summer of 2021. We had no idea at the time that he'd not only become one of our most prolific and popular narrators, but stepped behind the curtain to take on the role of narration editor in the fall of that year, too. So far, he's narrated about 20 stories for Tales to Terrify, with more on their way. But as narration editor, he's wrangled and edited so many more. Something that was really important to us early on as we struck out on our own and began to grow the show was creating more consistency in production quality. As a podcast that's purposefully avoided all the extra sound effects and music, masking poor audio quality is virtually impossible. 
But with Andrew's ear and technical capabilities gatekeeping the integrity of her narrations and lending consistency to the production quality, it's safe to say Tales to Terrify has never sounded better. Andrew not only reviews and edits the narrations we receive from the dozens of narrators we have from around the world, some of which he's personally brought into the fold, but pairs the stories you hear to individual voices. Casting, I guess you could say. Outside of Tales to Terrify, Andrew's been a prolific audiobook narrator, too. I'm sure you've heard me mention his exploits in his bio on the show, both as Andrew Gibson, the fiction narrator, and as Blake Lockhart, his romantic narrating alter ego. If you're ever curious about his process, or just want a peek into the booth, you can check out his Discord servers, The Narrator Nook, and The Haven, where he streams his narrations. It sounds like there may be some exciting new projects coming down the pipeline before long as well, too. Thanks again for all you do, Andrew. Your voice and your discerning ear for audio have truly made Tales to Terrify a dark delight. We won't hear from Andrew this week, but we do have a pair of harrowing horrors ready to worm their way into your ears, children of the night. Are you ready? Our first story for the evening comes from Kathleen Palm. Kathleen Palm haunts her 100-year-old farmhouse in rural Indiana, where she resists the urge to run through the killer-infested cornfields. About 18 years ago, her husband and two kids watched in terror as she started writing, her stories evolving from fantasy to horror. Surrounded by her three cats and dog, she survives in her living room absorbed in anything scary or weird and plotting how to spread light through the darkness. Several of her short stories have been published, most recently My Abbey in the anthology Blackberry Blood and The Door to Other Places in a quaint and curious volume of gothic tales. Children of the Night Join me for Kathleen Palm's Smile, a Tales to Terrify original. I stumbled down the shadowed hall, red marker in one hand and my clown doll clutched in the other. Hot pain stings my cheek from where her hand struck. I made her mad. I always make her mad. At least this time there's no blood. I hate blood. I rub my cheek on my shoulder to wipe away the hurt, though it's never gone. Mom's angry words crawl along the stained carpet after me, biting at my heels. Sammy, you little brat! That's it! Your markers and crayons, and especially that clown doll, are going in the trash! 
We got her good. Happy the clown whispers to me. Only to me. His black feet, ceramic, that's what Granny called them. Breakable, she said. Swing. Hitting each other. Clink. 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 Like laughter. I laugh with him. We did it, Happy. We got her good. I snuck into Mom's room, avoiding the empty bottles on the floor, and brought the marker to her face. But I wish she would smile for real. Behind me, Mom stands in the hall, face mashed into angry shapes. The light from her room claws its way over her feet and through the dark to get me. Mom jabs a shaky finger in the air. You better get to your room faster than that! Light hits Happy's shiny white face, making his star eyes glow. Tripping along the stained carpet, I squeeze his cloth body, my fingers brushing against the fuzzy pompons that line the front. Blue, green, yellow. I wish he'd stop. Stop hitting. Stop yelling. Stop being mad. Maybe we can make her stop. Happy says as his shiny gloved hands creep along my arm. We? I don't know. She's strong. My arm still aches and the cast has been off for ages. No, not you. We, your friends. We can make her stop. Happy's words match the rhythm of his swaying feet. Clink, clink, clink. Lurching behind me, Mom wipes her hand across her mouth, leaving a red smear, then waves her stained fingers at me. Eight years! Eight years I've put up with you! And now this? Why would you do this? The sound of Happy's giggles makes me pause, makes me brave, and I face Mom. I made you smile! I covered her face with a bright red grin while she slept, while she snored puffing her smelly breath, the nose-stinging scent of the empty bottles on the floor and the ones in the kitchen sink. Mom slams her hand against the wall. Go to your room! Anger sticks to her words, thick and heavy, oozing over my skin. I shiver, trying to get rid of the rage, because it stings, like the slap of her hand. All she ever says, all she ever does, all she ever is, Stop yelling! Stop! My voice squeaks and breaks as I make it as loud as I can. I curl my toes into the carpet, determined to stand, to stay. Torn bits of too old and too short pants sweep across my legs. Pants that were once red, my favorite color, now faded to pink. Sad, lonely, pathetic pink. One way or another, Sammy! The threat hangs in her eyes. Clown doll and marker pressed to my chest. I run. <laughs> you are so pathetic, Mom says, spitting and chuckling. Her words stab at my back, trying to make me cry. I stop at my bedroom door. Another step and I'll be safe in the red glow of my nightlight, comforting red that spreads over my room. Red like Happy's fuzzy hair that creeps across my cheek. But I hate running. I hate being scared. I don't want to be pathetic. Mom lunges down the hall, her eyebrows slashes of anger. Lines cover her face. Mean lines. Lines that say no. Lines that scream hate. 
my body shakes. As much as she hates me, I hate her more. Hate her for never taking me to a park or playing games like the moms and kids on TV. For making my one friend never come to our house again. For never smiling. For making me wear once red pants. Why don't you ever smile? I scream the words, words coated in spikes of hurt, hoping to cut her. Mom's close, too close. I leap into my room and I slam the door. My drawings taped to the back of the door flap with a sharp snap as my door becomes a shield against the way she points her finger, the way she yells. At me, always at me. The papers settle against the door with quiet sighs. My creations. So many pictures of clowns cover my door and the entire dirty white wall, smiling and waving. Red noses, wild rainbow hair, big curvy grins. My clowns, my friends who make me laugh. Like armor, they keep me safe. I hold happy to me, his face cool against my throbbing cheek. You did good, Happy says, his head pressing harder against my skin. <laughs> Not good enough. I wrinkle my nose to hold back the tears, and I shake. The light makes my red marker more, more red more powerful. My body feels like it could explode. A scream builds in my head like a balloon getting bigger and bigger, ready to pop. Setting the cry free, I throw the marker. It hits the ceiling with a satisfying crack, leaving a red dot, then falls to the floor where it sits in silence. Too quiet, that makes the too much inside me squirm and jerk, fighting to get out. With happy tucked under my arm, I kick and smack my toys, sending metal cars crashing into walls and trucks skidding over the floor. I pull on the hem of my shirt, holes open like screaming mouths that swallow the tiny dinosaurs that play on the fabric. I yank on my hair and ears and smash my fists into the walls, the pain better than facing the dark hole inside, one that can be filled with a smile. I run to my shelves and throw books on the floor. I tear the decaying curtain from the window. The tacks holding it up scatter over the mess. I rip my comforter from the bed, the blanket settling on the floor in chaotic folds. I stop and stare at my room, gulping air. You are strong. Clink, clink, clink. Like laughter. He always laughs for me to wipe away the sadness. I smooth the ruffles from Happy's face uncovering his star eyes and red nose. I want to be strong. Footsteps pound down the hall. I freeze, not ready to face what's coming and unable to escape. The door opens with a bang, and Mom trips in. What is going on in here? She looks around, her eyes wild. What have you done, you little brat? I grip my happy. Just a doll, Granny said. But he's more. His feet sway. Clink, clink, clink. The papers on my wall move, the edges crinkling. They whisper. We can hurt her. Happy's white face shines, his eyes and smile a comfort. Punish her. I sweep my fingers along my clown's great grin, then point at my mom. Why don't you smile? She throws her hands in the air. 
What do I have to smile about? Living in this dump? Having to feed you? Her words pour in an angry wave, the remains of the smile I gave her still visible, a faint outline of red. I feel small, shrinking to the size of nothing. I hug Happy. His soft body and the sound of his feet reassure me, give me strength. Clink, clink, clink. Shoulders hunched, Mom stands glued to the floor, the volume of her voice going up and up and up. I need her to stop. I want to wipe the anger from her face. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! I rush at her, ramming my shoulder into her stomach. Mom gasps, an angry burst of air, then grabs my arms. Fingernails dig into my skin as she shakes me. Don't you talk to me like that! Hurt sparks in my back and neck as I struggle to free myself from her grip. Happy's big black shoes no longer clink in happy giggles, but hit with a loud crack. I scream and shove Mom away, then inspecting my clown. A piece of his shoe is gone. A line splits his white mitten hand. I look at her, wishing she would crack, wishing she would fall to pieces. <laughs> you heard happy. On the wall behind Mom, the papers shiver, a wave going from one side to the other. Your grandmother and her stupid presence! Give me that ugly thing! With a scowl, she reaches for Happy, her fingers snagging his striped suit. I hold tight, but Mom grabs my wrist and twists until I let go with a frightened sob, for I fear hearing a bone snap, seeing my own blood. She dangles my Happy in front of me. Say goodbye to Clowny here. His name is Happy. Give him back. Whatever. It's going to live in the dump. No! I lunge for him, but Mom yanks him out of my reach. His head flops forward so I can't see his smile. I want to see his smile. I need to. Hand on my hip, she looks at my room. And say goodbye to the rest of this stuff. It's all trash now. I shift from one foot to the other and tug on my shirt. Happy, don't leave. Happy lifts his head, dim light gathering in his eyes. His red grin stretches as he tilts his head. We can make her smile forever. I release my shirt. We? You and me? On the wall, my pictures ripple, making the clowns dance. Wee! Happy's legs sway. Clink, clink, clink. Whispers drip from my drawings. We can make her smile. I stand straight and face Mom. We can make you smile. Mom laughs, an evil shout, and turns to the door. <laughs> Whatever, I need a drink. My bedroom door closes with a slam. Pictures flap, clawing at the air. What the? Mom shakes her head and stumbles to the door. Colored lines spread from my drawings, over the walls and ceiling, across the floor, erasing my room and leaving a circus tent. Scratching comes from the wall of clowns, my shield. Scraping and shuffling, crayon lines shift, creaking and cracking. I clap, ready for the show breathing in the smell of cotton candy and popcorn. And something else, something weird, something sharp.
My crayon clowns jerk to life, red mouths grinning. They crawl off the paper and down the wall, growing bigger with each move. Scribbles turn to real-life limbs. Mom drops her hands to her sides, happy hanging limp. What is this? Strength flows through me. Power. I jump up and down. Make her smile! Clowns swarm over the floor, tall and short, limping on uneven legs, swinging twisted arms, black eyes like dark holes. My clowns here to make me laugh. Stumbling over toys and fingers still wrapped around Happy, Mom backs away from the mass of rainbow hair and empty black eyes. This isn't happening! Clink, clink, clink. Happy's legs stretch to the floor. His head lifts, and his white hands creep up Mom's arm. Mom shrieks, then throws him to the floor. My clown lands with a thud, then sits up with a jerk. Mom presses her palms into her eyes, muttering, No, 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 I'm dreaming. She lowers her hands, eyes wide. I'm dreaming. No, Mom. As big as me, bigger than me, happy stands, and swaying on soft legs, he closes on Mom. Get away! Mom swings her arms to hit, to hurt. She connects with Happy's face. He crumples to the floor. I touch my cheek, the pain still fresh as I rush to him. No! Happy! Mom spins, facing the door. Or where it was. For my room is gone, transformed into a giant magic circus tent. Faces fade in and out of the light. Red noses. Giant smiles with white teeth. Smiles that grow. Stay away! She raises her hand, ready to strike as she tries to find a way out. But the clowns block her attempts, laughing, giggling, chuckling like a million hyenas. I laugh with them, because I want to laugh. I need to laugh. Mom's hands are fists. Her feet shuffle over the floor as she cries. She turns to me, her eyes holding tears, her face not lined with anger and hate, but desperation. Sammy, you let me out! No. With a cry, she charges at me. In a blur of stripes and red hair, Happy leaps between Mom and me. Mom screams, a sound of pain, a sound I know. Happy backs away, wiggling as he walks, one foot taps and the other drags. With a snap, his head turns, his starry gaze locks on me, and he smiles. And he bows, arms stretched out. I smile back and take a step forward, to Mom, to her face that twitches with hate, that twists with anything but a smile. One step, I grip my pants. All the times Mom yelled at me. Another step, a growl grows in my throat. All the times she hit me. All the times she pushed me aside. With a scream, I rush forward, hands out, and strike her soft belly. With a cry painted with anger, she falls back into the crowd of clowns who wrap puffy white hands around her. Mom's red-rimmed eyes fill with tears as her wails fill the shadows. But there's no one to hear her except me, and I don't want to help her. I rub my arms, feel the twinge of new bruises. Clowns crawl and stagger around her. Bent fingers cover her ankles and wrists, up her legs and arms.
Warped hands touch her face. Her skin breaks, cracks, revealing smooth white. Piece by piece, her face falls to the floor. Her hair turns to dust as red curls grow to replace it. Her hands twitch as ruffled sleeves burst from her wrists and her fingers puff into mittens. She slumps to her knees as if stuffing replaced her bones. The fire in me erupts into a giggle. <laughs> Smile, Mom. With a shriek, Mom lifts her chin. Her eyes turn black. Her cries fade when a red stain spreads over her lips and up her cheeks, her face freezing into a grin. Like the one I gave her. Like the one she wiped away. My clowns shift in a dance, walking on hands, skipping in uneasy rhythms. The red light dims, then brightens, dims, brightens. I stare at my friends, who appear and disappear as the light flashes. Closer and closer. I wait to embrace them. Red noses, huge grins, crooked shoulders and wild hair. Happy pops up, arms in the air, and pom-poms bouncing on his striped suit. Clink, clink, clink. Head tilted, he stops. White-gloved hands stretched into claws. Red mouth opens, sharp teeth part as a black void widens, then swallows me bringing darkness, calm. Sammy? The voice disturbs my peace. Sammy! I open my eyes and blink. The folds of my blanket surround me. My room no longer a circus tent, the light of morning overpowering the glow of my nightlight. Granny stands in my door, gray hair back in a ponytail and brown eyes surrounded by crinkles. Smile lines, she calls them. Around Granny, my pictures cover the wall. My clowns return to crayon lines. I sit up and laugh, remembering when they played, when they were real. The papers flutter. A scribbled arm waves. A head jerks to the side. What happened in here? Worry creeps into Granny's words. She's always worried. I look around at the mess of toys. I was mad. Was she mad too, Sammy? Yeah. Granny rushes forward, inspecting my face and arms. She hurt you again. Happy lingers, a crumpled heap at my side. Yeah, but she won't anymore. I'm okay. I pick up my doll, placing him in my lap. His feet come together. Clink, clink, clink. Where's your mother? She's here. I touch another doll. Polka dots make a happy pattern over its suit. Red curls, a red nose, and a huge red smile. Okay, stay here. I'll be back. Granny wanders down the hall, calling for Mom. But she won't find her. I pick up the new doll, her feet clinking together, and wipe a drop of water from her shining white face. Don't cry, Mom. Now you get to smile forever. That was Kathleen Palm's Smile, as read by Jesse Holt.
Little is known about Jesse Holt, though rumors have circulated that he was found frozen within a 20,000-year-old ice formation during an Arctic oil drilling expedition. This is purely speculation, of course, as the official records state that the entire staff of the camp perished in what was described at the time as the most savage polar bear attack in history, judging by the mutilated and partially consumed corpses that littered the snow. Strangely, no bear tracks were found. Today, Jesse is a voice actor and tour guide with a passion for travel, and he's always happy to meet new victims or friends. You can find him on Twitter at Jesse Holt Voice or on his website at jesseholtvoice.com. Thank you, Jesse. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Our second tale tonight comes to us from Erin Keating. Erin Keating earned her B.A. in Creative Writing and Literature at Roanoke College and her M.A. in History at Drew University, mostly so she could continue to surround herself with old books. She currently works as a grant writer at an arts education nonprofit. When she's not reading or writing, she enjoys rock climbing, language learning, and playing bass guitar. Her fiction can be found in Metaphorosis, Haven Spec, and Luna Station Quarterly, among others. Listen with me, children of the night, to Aaron Keating's Bitter Girl Hunger, a Tales to Terrify original.
the ground has teeth and greedy hands. It rumbles with a hollow, hungry ache for the plump peach flesh and corn silk hair of girls. Janie had been told not to wander too far. Not because her mother knew about the teeth that waited below the dirt, but because the mountain paths were steep and more than one girl had slipped on loose stone not to be found until spring. By then, her bones were picked clean. You understand, don't you, Janie? her mother often asked. When her father died of fever that winter, when there was a new man around the house that spring, it's hard to be a woman alone on the mountain. You understand, don't you, Janie? Janie was twelve, her body all angles and hard labor muscle. But she understood that the roads were dangerous. Her father was dead, and her mother's new man looked at her in a way that made her lock her door at night and sleep with a knife under her pillow. She understood enough. Janie may never have learned about the ground's hunger if she hadn't arrived home one day to a roar. She plodded down the pine-needle path from the goat's pen, the tin pail full of warm milk bumping against her knees. She felt the rumbling through the trees before she realized what it was. The new man's voice threatened to bring down the rafters and shatter the windows with their curtains drawn shut. His bellows were more animal than human. Some guttural tongue that she never learned. The only word she understood was her mother's name. He hurled it like a curse. Janie fled. There was no place to run, but only away. Away. Her mind was blank gone all white like the goat's milk spilled from her abandoned pail. Her feet in her two small boots carried her on, on past the last house for miles, on past the bend in the road, on past the break in the trees. When her foot caught the loose stone on the mountain's edge, her mother's voice filled the ringing in her head. You understand, don't you, Janie? Janie fell. She tumbled down along the steep edges of the ravine. The angles of her body buckled and snapped. The hard labor muscles tore and bled. The world spun around her as she rolled feet over head over feet again. The green tops of the gangly trees, the red clay of the mountainside, the gray jagged rocks at the bottom of the ravine. She waited for the sharp landing, the flash of bright white pain on those gray rocks. But it never came. She tumbled down into something darker, 
into something wet and hot. The ground swallowed her whole. Janie stretched her arms and legs, wiggled her fingers and toes. She waited for a stab of pain to cut through the shock or for a broken limb to fail to move. But she seemed unharmed. She stood slowly, pulling her skirt from the soft, squelching mass in which she had landed. She looked upward, expecting to see the hole she fell through. All was dark. Janie had heard stories of old mines carved into the mountainside, of cave-ins that buried men alive. This was not a mine shaft, nor was it her mountain. Janie was sure of that. The walls pulsed with a deep red glow. A hot wind prickled the back of Janie's neck. In the half-light, she followed a narrow path where the walls constricted, then released like a creature swallowing. Her boot landed in a puddle of something viscous and dark. A sucking sound echoed down the long tunnel as she pulled it free. The further she walked into the tunnel, the dimmer the light grew, and the heavier the air became. She could smell the damp earth and something sweet, fruit half-rotted and flowers wilted in the summer heat. The warm goat's milk curdled in Janie's stomach. Soon, the air was so thick and the fleshy walls of the tunnel so narrow. She couldn't push her way through. Its sweet rot steamed all around her. Now how am I supposed to get out? Janie muttered. In response, the walls parted to reveal two white eyes and a wide smile. Janie clutched her knife in the folds of her skirts. The wall had too many rows of teeth. Finally, the wall sighed. It pushed closer to Janie, breathing in her hair. Janie brandished her knife, and the wall recoiled from the glinting metal. What are you? she demanded. I am the ground. The voice rumbled around her, low and deep and wet. Its five rows of teeth gnashed at her and her knife. Janie held it firmly. She had clutched it in her dreams, and now it felt like an extension of her arm. What do you want with me? Janie watched saliva trickle between those jagged teeth. I want to pick your bones clean, the ground rumbled. The walls pressed in and the ceiling lowered until Janie was brought to her knees. I won't taste good. My meat will be tough. 
Janie warned, though her voice shook. Perhaps, the ground mused with a voice slick as grease. But you will be sweet. Then it sank its teeth into the fleshy part of Janie's elbow. Fire raced through her veins. She tried to swing her knife, but couldn't move her arm trapped in the ground's jaws. It spat. Janie fell in a heap on the squishy floor. <laughs> the walls in the floor shook with disgust. So tough. So bitter. I've never tasted a girl so bitter. The white eyes and five rows of teeth retreated into the dark, fleshy walls. Janie cradled her wounded arm. Blood spilled onto her skirts. If I disgust you, then let me go. The pain stole her breath, and what started as a shout ended as a whimper. Her right arm burned from fingertips to shoulder. You are bitter now, but you will sweeten with age. Girls grow even softer and sweeter when they are in love. There was a slurping sound in the darkness, like a tongue running over teeth. Yes, when you are newly married, I will devour you. Ha! I will never marry, Janie laughed. We shall see, bitter girl. But if you do... Remember that I am the ground. As long as you tread upon me, I will find you. The ground spit her out. Janie woke at the bottom of the ravine, to the faces of her mother and her mother's two youngest brothers. Her mother had a split lip, a black eye, and bruises like fingerprints across her ribs that Janie wouldn't see until she undressed for the night. A neighbor had fetched Janie's uncles from another town round the mountain, and they rode breakneck with rifles to chase her mother's man away. They never spoke of him again. Their gentle hands searched Janie's body for broken bones. On the outside, she was unharmed except for a peculiar scar. It was a perfect square on the inside of her elbow, a raised pattern woven into her skin, as though it had been stretched over a loom. But... 
As they lifted Janie from the rock, she began to thrash. Please, not yet. I'm missing something, she begged. There was a strange emptiness to her body, a hollowness reverberated between her ribs. She had misplaced a part of herself. She was certain of it. What are you missing? Her mother and uncles asked. But Janie did not know. A tooth? Or a broken fingernail? Anything to explain the not-quite-wholeness of her. They counted her teeth, strong and milk-white. They inspected her nails, stubby and pink. After they could still find nothing wrong with her, they carried her from the ravine. The sun set red behind the mountain. Janie wondered why it reminded her of blood and teeth. Janie grew up and out, filling in her angles with the smooth curves of womanhood. People stopped calling her Janie and started calling her Jane. She still carried her knife in the folds of her skirts. And, though she did not sleep with it under her pillow, she slept with her right fist balled as though clutching the wooden handle. The scar on the inside of her elbow had not faded. Neither did the gnawing emptiness that had plagued her since she woke up at the bottom of the ravine. She grew accustomed to that pit in her stomach, and she grew accustomed to the rest of her woman's body. In Jane's twentieth summer, she noticed a young man. William was the midwife's son trained at his mother's elbow in the healing arts. His hands were nicked with scars from brambles. Those hands were not the first thing that Jane noticed about him. But they were what made her realize he would be hers. William brought powdered willow bark to brew into a tea for Jane's mother's aching joints. Because no man besides her uncles, had entered their house in nearly a decade. Jane met him at the door and said she would brew the tea herself. When she tried to pay William, he refused. He would return tomorrow and would only accept payment if her mother felt better. Jane watched him walk down the road, his curls catching gold in the dappled light. That gnawing feeling leapt from her stomach into her throat and left her gasping. She dug her fingers into the doorframe and tried to swallow down her emptiness. The next day, Jane's mother's fingers did not lock around her spoon. Jane paid William when he arrived. They stood in the doorway the transaction done, simply looking at each other. Jane noticed the flecks of amber in his eyes, the slightest gap in his front teeth. Is there anything else I can get you? William asked. Are you having trouble sleeping, getting headaches, or... Sleeping, Jane blurted. 
yes, I'm having trouble sleeping. This was not wholly a lie. Occasionally, she had nightmares filled with a pulsing red light. I'll bring you something for that tomorrow. The timber of his voice reverberated in the long, hollow places of her chest. William visited the next day when he delivered a tincture of chamomile. When he visited the day after that, when Jane paid him for a well-rested night, in those first few moments after waking, she felt whole, filled in a way she hadn't since she fell. But then the gnawing returned like cold fingers, picking apart her insides. For months, William brought her needless remedies. They stood on Jane's stoop, sweating through the summer and shivering in the sudden autumn that fell upon the mountain. Jane finally invited him inside when the first frost covered the dirt road. Under the pretense that it was too cold to talk long outdoors. By then, she loved him. William sang and filled the house with a gentle tenor. He brought treats, honey cakes and gingerbread, and filled the house with the smell of sugar. He helped Jane tend the fire and filled the house with the warmth of wood smoke. After he left for the night, thoughts of him filled Jane's head with dreams so stirring she could hardly look at him the next day. When William asked Jane to marry him, she held his hands and ran her thumb over those bramble scars. Jane had never had much of her own in the world. She had her knife, and now she had him. Spring came and her uncles rode round the mountain to break ground for Jane and William's house. The wedding was held on the summer solstice, the festivities stretching on through the endless twilight. By the time William carried Jane over the threshold, both of them were drunk on blackberry wine. Jane had never been touched so tenderly in all her life as she was that night. Not as though she was fragile, but as though she was deserving of reverence. William's calloused fingers, in their slow wandering over her bare skin, brushed against the woven scar on the inside of her elbow. What happened? he asked softly. Jane had almost forgotten the scar. So long had it been part of her. She told him of her tumble down the ravine. William pressed his lips to that patch of puckered skin. Her body hummed. In the breathlessness that followed, her gnawing hollowness faded beneath waves of heat. Though it lasted only a moment, Jane relished in feeling whole. 
as Jane sank into sleep, her lips swollen and hips sore with a satisfying ache. She glanced down at the scar. A single drop of blood pooled there, running down to the crook of her elbow. Distantly, she wondered if William had kissed her too hard. The thought vanished as she tumbled down into her old nightmare. Red light pulsed. A sucking sound echoed each footfall along a slick floor. The fleshy walls parted to reveal white eyes and five rows of teeth. A greasy voice whispered, Finally. Jane sweated through the bed linens, a scream tumbling from her lips. The gnawing ache threatened to crack her ribs. It was not a nightmare, she realized. It had never been a nightmare. It was a memory, the memory of a tough, bitter girl who had been swallowed and spit out. Jane pressed her fingers to her scar, which had scabbed over in the night. That's when she saw it. A blood-red ruby rested on her pillow. That morning, William laughed at the ruby, thinking it a glass bauble bestowed as a wedding gift. But the sight of it filled Jane with a sticky dread, because she knew it had grown from her scar. It was a gift from the ground. The ruby was the first of many gifts that crawled from Jane's skin. The following day, a porcelain rabbit sprang from her elbow. Jane smashed it underfoot. The day after, a gossamer fairy with wire wings fluttered out. Jane ripped it to shreds and threw the remains in the stove. I am not so sweet as to be tempted with trinkets, Jane muttered. Or did you forget that I am bitter? She stamped her feet on the gleaming new floorboards, in case the ground was listening. The ground was indeed listening, because after Jane threw the toy fairy into the fire, the gifts became less kind. The following day, the skin of her elbow wriggled and writhed until a dozen white moths hatched from her scar. They flew around the house in a panic, leaving powdery imprints on the windows. The day after, she woke from a restless sleep to discover her right arm covered from fingertip to shoulder in a thick, spider's web. As the gifts grew more malicious, Jane's scar grew infected. The once pale woven skin had turned the deep purple of a bruise green around the edges. It leaked yellow pus. William wrapped her elbow in a poultice, trying to draw the infection out with every ingredient he could find. Salt baking soda, linseed oil, apple cider vinegar, but nothing worked. Jane's arm burned to the touch, 
The little house was heavy with the sickly sweet smell of rot. Jane left every window open, but the hot summer air weighed down the scent of overripe peaches and wilting roses. One morning, after William had left for his rounds, Jane unwrapped her poultice to find worms crawling from her scar. She held a lit match to each one, not flinching from the heat or from the shrieking hiss of the worms as they singed and died. I am not so soft as to be scared by your insects, Jane muttered. Or did you forget that I am tough? She spat on the new floor and left a puddle of spittle in case the ground was watching. The ground was indeed watching, because that night, while Jane dreamt of teeth, a thick black root grew from her scar. Its hairs inched along the sheets, feeling their way across the bed. The root found William breathing steadily, golden curls mussed against the pillow. The root coiled around William's neck. Somewhere in Jane's dark and winding dream, she heard him grunting and gasping. She startled awake to find William kicking, tugging at the choking root. Even in her half-sleep, Jane knew where it had come from. She dug her fingers deep into the festering wound and pulled as hard as she could. It came free with a snap. Pain shot up her arm, buzzing in her teeth and the base of her skull as a piece of bone chipped off with it. The root sagged around William's neck. He gulped down air, amber eyes watering. They were quiet for a long time. Jane's right arm hung limp at her side. Finally, she pressed her good hand to William's cheek. There is something I must do. She kissed him on his damp brow, tenderly, not as though he were fragile, but as though she may not have the privilege again. William rose from bed. The skin of his neck was red and raw. I'm coming with you, he insisted. Jane shook her head. If I'm not back by morning, look for me at the ravine. Jane left her little house with its gleaming new floorboards. Out on the dirt road, the ground nipped at her bare feet. She kicked at it, sending up a cloud of dust. The full moon lit her path. Jane did not need it. It was the same path she took all those years ago, past the last house for miles, past the bend in the road, past the break in the trees. Her arm throbbed, sticky with blood and pus. White stars burst in her vision. Jane gritted her teeth. She kicked again at the greedy hands grabbing at her ankles. The ground said it would find her. But she 
would find the ground. Jane took a running start and leapt from the edge of the ravine. The air snapped around her as she plunged. The ground swallowed her feet first. When Jane pulled herself from the squelching mass in which she'd landed, the wall of teeth and white eyes was already upon her. Hot breath leaked from its parted mouth. Finally, the ground sighed. Jane did not have her knife this time, only a bald left fist, a limp right arm, and that familiar feeling that squirmed inside her, hollowing her out. That man is mine. This body is mine. You will leave us in peace, Jane demanded. The ground let out a damp laugh, shaking the walls around her. That body is not yours. It has not been yours since I sank my teeth into you and made you a part of me. The skin on the inside of Jane's elbow rippled as the ground's voice rumbled around her. Her scar had rotted her from the inside. She understood The ground had tried to make her sweet. I am just as bitter, Jane insisted. Just as tough. A cavernous ache shuddered through her, threatening to tear her in two. I do not care. I have hungered long enough. Hunger. Jane gasped as another pang gutted her. Hunger. Her bones rattled with it. Her skin crawled with it. Her innards reverberated with it. Hunger. That was the empty feeling that had settled into her very marrow. The ground had done more than mark her. It had given her its hunger. Perhaps, Jane said. The walls pressed in on her, but so have I. Jane devoured the ground. She tore the dark flesh from the walls and slurped up the slimy bits from the floor. It was the tenderest, sweetest meat she had ever tasted. She ate and ate and ate until she hit bedrock. Something older than the ground with no need for hunger. Sated, Jane curled against the smooth stone. Her sleep was deep and dreamless. William found Jane at the bottom of the ravine as ashen dawn broke over the treetops. He began to weep, expecting to find her body mangled, her sharp face unrecognizable. 
Instead, as he neared, he saw that she slept as comfortably as she did in their own bed, with her right fist balled beneath her head, as though she clutched something precious. He kissed her forehead. She tasted of damp earth, half-rotted fruit, and the hot, wet summer night. Jane woke dreamily, batting her eyes twice to clear the sleep. Then her hand searched the skin of her elbow. It was as smooth as the day she was born. She sat there, with the man who was hers and the body that was hers. Wholeness settled in her stomach and clung to her ribs. Jane was full. The ground has teeth and greedy hands. It rumbles with the hollow, hungry ache for girls wandering far from home. But remember this. The ground's hunger is nothing to the hunger of your own. That was Aaron Keating's Bitter Girl Hunger, as read by Josie Babin. Living in that formerly abandoned house on the corner, the one across the street from the cemetery, the one with all those cats lounging about, you will find Josie, happily narrating horror stories. No one has seen her human companion lately, but the cats do look well-fed. Not that those things have anything to do with one another. In between stories, she works on a long list of house projects and car projects. But best of all, she gets to work on lab projects, growing cells into medicine, hopefully making the world a little healthier in the not-so-far-off future. If you're ever in San Diego, stop by to say hi. She'll introduce you to her cats. Thank you, Josie. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Orion D. Hegre, Paul Belcher, Amanda Gottfried, and Kathy Robinson whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? 
talestoterrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs. It's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we feed your inner demons with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com slash covered.